The advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Doreen Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live from many places around the world this morning. We're here with Dr. Doreen Grandpichet and what a lovely spring morning to have her here with us. We're so excited to have this whole next hour talking with her. Uh, this whole next hour, as always on our show, is meant to be interactive. We want to hear from you. We want to know your thoughts, your questions, your concerns, your comments, whatever you got going on. And it's easier now than ever to find us and to get a hold of us. We are live right now on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and for a couple more days on Periscope until Periscope goes poof or migrates. We don't know what it's going to do yet. But we're also live on many other sites right now, and we are a free download wherever you get your podcasts. And I don't know if you saw in the news that we are the number one rated autism podcast in the world. Woo! And we are that because of all of you, because you watch. Uh, we just want to thank you so much for telling your friends about us. And if you watch the show now, you know, we have a little video that plays at the end that says like us, you know, follow us, re uh, review us, do whatever, and all the places that you can watch us. We really appreciate you guys have been doing that. And more people are getting our message, which is really wonderful because, you know, that's our whole thing here. Our mission is to provide information and inspiration. And oh my gosh, have I got anybody, could I potentially have anybody better? The answer is no than who we have today. It's Ask Dr. Doreen Day. <laughs> Dr. Doreen Grampiche is here. She's going to be answering your questions live. Some of you have already written in in the night um, either to our homepage, which is autism-live.com, and there is a chat button at the bottom. Please know it's not an interactive chat. We can't go back and forth. That's for another day that eventually we'll have that, maybe in the 20th year that we're on the air. But, but you can send messages and I can get them and then I can ask experts like Dr. Grandpichet your question. Uh, so we have some from there and some of you have emailed me questions. I just want to say I, I've had a little trouble with my email this week. And so if I don't, if I'm not responding to you, will you do me a favor and please re-email me because something went kerfooey in my email I'm sure it was me, but something has gone awry in my email and I've lost some. Uh, hey, I want to say good morning to 2008 Graphics and I want to say good morning to Just May C. Thank you so much for being with us. 
I mentioned, I got to take a breath eventually. I mentioned that Dr. Grand Pichet is here with us this morning. For those of you who don't know her, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for you this morning that you're going to get to know her. She is a true expert in the field of autism. I always say, I think that she is the expert of our time. And I think that there is no other time than this time uh, for autism. We know more now than we've ever known. And I, I love that Dr. Grampichet has been working in this field for over 30 years and has treated everything from very small children, very small children up through senior citizens. I love so many things about her view of the world and how she views autism and how, uh, how she brings herself to the autism community. What, one of the main things I love about her is that she sees individuals who are on the spectrum as whole people and as people who have a whole biosystem and have many things going on. And the empathy that I have seen her have for families is unparalleled. Um, the way she, she looks at the whole unit of the family um, and, and helping them to reach their highest goals uh, is just amazing. Good morning to Sam. So thrilled that you're here with us this morning. So anyway, Dr. Grampichet is here. She's going to be answering your questions. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, she's a licensed psychologist who's been working in this field for so many decades. But even an Excalibur cannot give, none can give individual specific advice in this particular format. It wouldn't be fair to assume that she could know enough about someone to give expert advice specifically about them in this format. So what we do ask is that you write in for yourself or for your child, uh, whatever it is that you want to ask, give as much information as you can to Dr. Grampichet, stick around because she might ask you questions to get more information. But then she will give you knowledge that she has based on her experience. You want to take that knowledge back to the people who have eyes on the situation so that you can get further and know more and maybe know what more questions to ask. Because sometimes it's just the question that you ask. So good morning, Dr. Grampichet. Good morning, Shannon, and good morning to all our viewers. And thank you again for all your kind words. You're too kind to me, Shannon, honestly. Thank you so much. No. No, if I if I could make award statues for you every week to give you, I'm sure I could find something new every week to give you an award statue for. So, so no, uh, it's not that. I wanna I wanna jump right to a live question that came in from someone who joins us a lot and that we adore. Parker has written in and said, "Are gut problems prevalent for people like myself? I'm having a colonoscopy <laughs> next month." I've heard all about gut biomes and stuff like that. I just want answers. And should I refuse a colonoscopy? Yeah. So, uh, and I don't know uh, all that much about Parker in terms of age and so on, but I, uh, first of all, <clears throat> gut problems are pretty prevalent uh, for individuals on the spectrum and in, in the general population now, unfortunately, because our food source is so bad. And, uh, you know, we have this health thing going on in the U S where we have pretty much already destroyed most of the, the gut biome. So, um, uh, that is a yes to that portion of the question the second part, though, I would not refuse a colonoscopy if a physician feels that you need a colonoscopy at this point. 
um, I would do the colonoscopy because you want to find out uh, if there's any kind of structural issue going on in the gut, and that is very important anyway to do. Um, and uh, I think in the typical population after age 40 or so, or 50 maybe, I'm not sure you're supposed to do one every five years, I believe, unless there's something else going on, in which case you might even do it more frequently. The colonoscopy itself is not a, a negative experience. The preparation for the colonoscopy is a little bit difficult with drinking mass amounts of liquid. But other than that, it's, it's a pretty straightforward, easy procedure. And you always want to rule out and make sure that there's nothing structurally wrong there that could cause problems later. Now, uh, depending on what your gut problem is, uh, there are also a lot of kind of naturopathic physicians who can help you in regards to changing your diet and uh, eating uh, prebiotic foods and also adding probiotics uh, to your diet. Um, and so gradually over time, you would replace the healthy gut bacteria which would potentially reduce some of the gut problems. Most of the gut problems that are experienced have to do with inflammation. And with the help of diet change, pre and probiotics, you end up uh, reducing inflammation. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a big topic, a very, yes. very big topic. And unless anyone, I'm sure that there are some people who are like, what do you mean we've destroyed our food biome in the United States? But oh. I mean, we know, we know a lot of people who, when they are eating grain products in the United States, their, their colon cannot handle it. And they mm -hmm. will get all manner of symptoms, whether it is just yeah. IBS or, or people who have worse situations, and yet those same people, for instance, I mean, I'm not talking urban myth, I'm talking about people that I personally know who in the United States cannot eat a piece of bread, have a horrible reaction, but uh, multiple people that I know that are like this, they go to France and they can eat an entire baguette, eat the entire yeah. loaf of bread and never have a problem. Right. Um, we, have, we have done some things, uh, we've made some choices here about what, you know, how, how we will allow food to be grown, what we will allow to be put on it, how we will allow people to um, create hybrid things, um, what they call the Franken food, right? The, yeah. um, you know, um, so, and there are some real ramifications to it, but, but I know a lot of people who have um, gone, gotten treatment and found that their life was significantly better as a result of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, there was a period of time when we had two therapists on our team, Dr. Grampuche, I've told this story before, but there were two therapists on our team that kept asking questions about Jem's diet. And then together, the two of them decided that they were for April, for the month of April, they were going to try to go gluten-free just to experience what their clients were going through. And they were doing it as a favor to their kids in solidarity that were on that diet. Let's see what it is. For both of them, it was life-changing. Yeah. At the end of 30 days, they went, oh my goodness, I feel different. I feel better. I can't believe how much better I feel, how much better I think. I am not as foggy. Um, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. So. yeah, it is very interesting. And there are a lot of people struggling with this particular issue. And you're right, Shannon. 
It has a lot to do with how we modify our foods here in the U.S. and gluten being the protein in, in kind of whole grains. Uh, we've modified those so significantly from a genetic perspective that it's not even, it's not digestible anymore to most people. So, yeah, and, you know, we, we unfortunately, Shannon, instead of looking at the source and discussing how we can change our food source, uh, instead what happens is all those folks who struggle with digesting these foods, and it's a lot of our food. I mean, you know, I've talked about this a lot of times where over 98% of the food in the U.S. is genetically modified in one way or another. And so what happens is the individuals get inflammation. And then, of course, once they have gut inflammation, they go and see a physician and they get a new diagnosis, which is, you know, celiac or IBS or IBD, whatever it is. And then they start taking medications to prevent that. And so it's this terrible cycle instead of kind of like just changing the food so that we are able to heal uh, it, we end up just, you know, having inflammation and then taking medication to reduce the inflammation. Okay. Uh, we've got a mom who's writing in and her son is with us and listening. So we're saying hi to him. But my question to mom is, do you want us to answer the question while he's listening or do you want us to wait? But I'm saying hi to my little friend. Uh, and I'm going to wait to answer because I, I had your question on my list anyway, but you worded it differently and I like how you worded it better. Um, but in the meantime, I've got a grandmother in Canada uh, right now. Her three-year-old grandson has been diagnosed with autism. He's nonverbal. He repeat, repeats a few words, for example, apple or banana, but not clearly, but he tries sometimes. It mm -hmm. seems that he learns and then he forgets. He has nine hours of ABA a week. I believe it is not enough, but in Canada, they believe it is still, uh, he is still very young and doesn't need more. Recently, he developed a visual um, stimming, I think is what she means. He constantly mm -hmm. looks at a window, daylights or lights. Since he started doing this, he doesn't want to play with any toy. I cannot catch his attention at all. No eye contact, no play. Um, and she went on to say that she's been watching the show and has heard me talk about the progress that my son has made. She's very interested to know what the road to recovery looks like. Um, and uh, is there any way to reduce visual stimming her grandson more attentive? Yeah. So, you know, I, it, the, the answer to that is a very simple, fast one, which is, your grandson needs 40 or more hours of high quality ABA as soon as possible. That is the answer. And um, it's difficult for me to say that because I know that in Canada, it's a little bit difficult. It's hard to find people. I, in countries where they're not, it, it, the, the philosophy is a little bit different and there's no funding or not adequate funding, and not enough trained people, I always advise families the same way we used to advise families, you know, 20 years ago when there was no funding also in the US. So, and the answer to that is uh, someone in the family can just take control of the situation right now and can hire uh, students who can then receive training from us and you can put together a team 
of uh, people who will help your grandson get through this process of learning. The, to summarize what the path of recovery is, the path is basically young children um, who are, what we do is we assess all the areas that they have, they need instruction. So areas in which they are behind or deficient in some way. And we also measure all of their challenging behaviors and what you do is you essentially will teach those areas that are deficient and you use ABA techniques to reduce those challenging behaviors. And you do all of this together intensively so that by the time, let's say you start a child around age three, by the time they're six or seven, uh, at least in half the cases, the child has caught up to his or her peers. And even if they haven't caught up, they, most of our children make very significant gains um, in the first uh, three years or so. So um, where you don't have staff, what you do, you can't do this alone as a parent. It really does take a village. So you need to hire you know, five people who could be students. Uh, they could even be uh, you know, 12th graders. They don't need to be college students as long as they're mature enough to show up for work and care about your child. The training that they require is all available to you on IBT, which is the Institute for Behavioral Training. Uh, the website is ibehavioraltraining.com. If you go there, you'll see all of our training that we've developed over the years at Center for Autism is on there. Um, and you can get these individuals trained at an incredibly low cost because uh, everybody can just sit together and watch these videos and, and pass the tests and so on. And once they're trained, while they're training, you, parent or grandparent, caretaker, would caregiver would go on another website called Skills, Skills for Autism. And that's the curriculum. So there you would answer a whole bunch of questions about the child's skills. So it's kind of like, can your child, just things that you just told us, like, can your child say any words? You know, are they articulated correctly? Those types. Of, and it's all yes or no answers. And you answer all these questions and skills produces a profile for your child of all the things that need to be taught one by one. It's very, very simple. Um, and it just lists all of those lessons and you pick the earliest lessons. So the lessons that correspond to, let's say, what a typical two-year-old would be able to do. And then you uh, put together, let's say, 20 of the lessons and each of those therapists starts developing, uh, starts this, doing those lessons with the child. And you'll need some supervision for this. And the supervision is provided through individuals in the world who are called BCBAs or board certified behavior analysts. And you can access those individuals. Uh, there's a website in the US called the Behavior Analysis Certification Board, BACB.org. And when you go on there and you'll, you'll see you know, thousands, literally thousands of people listed in different regions of the world. And you contact those people and you say, can I get some supervision for, for my grandchild or for my child? It's a few steps, but, you know, with some effort, 
you can put together a good program um, and you'll have supervision and guidance and uh, your child will move forward or your grandchild will move forward. But the key to it is you cannot get rid of challenging behaviors or self-stimulatory behaviors like looking out the window, being distracted, unless at the same time you are teaching new skills. Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. And if you try to get rid of some behaviors and the child still doesn't have enough skill, um, they'll find a new challenging behavior to replace it with. So it's really important to uh, like instead of saying, oh, well, don't allow the child to look out the window, you first need to have a whole bunch of activities lined up so the child is busy. And if they are busy, they won't look out the window. It's kind of more that way. Hopefully that okay. answers some of the questions. And no, and I love your answer. And I'm going to talk about why I love your answer. But first, I want everybody to take a deep breath. Because what Dr. Grampy, just, Grampy Shade just said was a lot. Yeah. And I know some of you are having like a small panicky feeling right now. Like what? I have to hire people. I have to what? Uh, you know, and it like makes that thing in your chest. I know the first time somebody told me that I was like, I, no, I'm not capable of that. Um, now I was lucky because I had services already set up. I had other hoops I had to jump through that weren't as intensive as that. But here's, I want you to take a deep breath and I want to tell you something that other people have done this and you can follow in their snowshoes and, and it will be faster and easier for you because you will follow in their snowshoes. And other people have been able to do this and put together and, and not actually pay a nickel for any of the services. They, they were uh, ingenious and they found like um, one place, it was a Kiwanis club that they went to their local Kiwanis club and they said, I need five people who are willing to learn something and be a part of something that's amazing and volunteer their time, we'll train them and they will have the skill later on. But I need a commitment that you guys are able to work with my child for eight hours a week, five of you. Right. Um, another parent that we know did it. She was in a university town and she each sorority and fraternity on campus has to have a project that's something that's supposed to be good for the world. She went to a sorority and said, would you guys like to take my child on as your sorority? And everybody in this. And how smart was this? Because as the sisters graduated, they were teaching the other sisters so there was always a backlog of people to help her child and to fill in. So it isn't always, I know we always think it's about the cold, hard cash, and sometimes it can be, but if you're smart, other people have done this without cold, hard cash. Yeah. But but as Dr. Grampy Shea said, you need a team of people and you need to get some education. We've got it for you. I'm going to give you a phone number to call in just a second, get your pencil sharpened and out. But I want you to know that it's possible that it's doable and that it's a choice. Now, there are other people out there that if you ask this question, they would say, oh, I'm so sorry, you don't have services, nine hours, well, make do with nine hours. And one of the things that I love about Dr. Grampuche is she's not gonna hand you that horse manure. Mm -hmm. That is not who she is, that's not what she's about. She's gonna tell you the truth and then she's gonna let you deal with your feelings about how you feel about the truth. But the, for those of you who go, okay, I wanted to know what the pathway was. Now I know what the pathway is. I'm going to get started on it and I'm going to do my level best. And I'm just going to, you know, do this every day 
And it's not every day for the rest of your life. It's every day for a period of time in your life. It's like having an Olympic athlete that the family goes, all right, we have extraordinary circumstances here. We have somebody who has this extraordinary talent and we want to get them ready for the Olympics. So we're going to set aside, you know, two or three or four or five years as a family and put a lot of energy into this. And we're going to bring in experts and we're going to bring in help. And when something isn't working, we're going to reevaluate it. And we're going to keep on plugging because we've decided that this is important to us. So again, everybody take a breath because now I'm going to give you the, the place that you're going to want to call um, so that you can get some, some uh, free assistance. So uh, Dr. Grampiche talked about something called IBT, the Institute for Behavioral Training. And there's also something called skills. These are both great resources for you. I'm going to tell you what they're offering to you for free this week. Um, IBT is offering parent e-learning courses that's online that you can watch, that you can have other people in your family watch. And it's called Overcome. The one that they're giving away this week is called Overcoming Challenging Behaviors. So if your kiddo is doing something that's really disruptive and unsettling, this is the video to watch and it's free right now. I'm going to give you the phone number in just a second. They're also giving away for the educator community, the um, for teachers, the module that's called Teaching Communication, and that's available to teachers at no charge. You right now can call the number that I'm going to give you in a second here and, and say, I want this for my teacher, and you can email your teacher and get them hooked up with that. What a great gift that is as spring break is here. Um, and then also they're offering, this is the one I really want you to hear, um, is that they're offering the RBT, which is the Registered Behavior Technician e-learning course. It's the first step that therapists take towards get, becoming a registered behavior technician or becoming a board certified autism technician. It's a 40 hour course. It's normally a $440 value. And they're giving that away to parents on a case by case basis. If you call them and tell them you really need this in your serious business, they just don't want to give it to everyone because it's a 40 hour commitment. But if you're wanting to do it, they will entertain giving that to you for free. That's also, um, if you call them and say that you saw it on Autism Live, they will give you 10% uh, discount on any skills product, which I think you're going to want to take a look at because skills is amazing. Uh, okay, so here's the phone number. Are we ready? 877-975-4559. Again, that's 877-975-4559. Four five five nine. You tell them you saw it on Autism Live. You can say you're friends with me. You want the friends and family discount. Um, they will know what you're talking about. And then you can get hooked up with those e-learning things. And by the way, you can watch the video. Your spouse can watch the video. Your babysitter can watch the video. I just love it. Um, so, so there's that. Um, fantastic. I do want to say, Dr. Grampiche, that um, someone else wrote in and said, yes, it's hard to find services in Canada. There's wait lists. So parents do uh, most of it at, uh, on their own at home. And they said that they did that. Their child was diagnosed at 10 and a half years old and that they learned by taking a course and watching videos online. Just exactly what we've just talked about. Yeah. Uh, I just, okay. I, I, I do want to, a couple of real quick points, Shannon. Yeah. I think, first of all, I do want to reiterate what you said. I mean, I commend parents who get involved and do this or try to do this on their own. 
but we have other kids, other work, other things as well, which is why I always really feel that it's important to build a team, spend the time to build the team and don't try to just do what you can do. I mean, again, it's good that you're doing anything you can, but put, bring in some other people, however you can. A lot of colleges in the U.S., at least I'm sure you could arrange something in Canada as well, will give course credit to students who are willing to do things like this. So, um, you know, <clears throat> it's a very uh, important thing to try to get a team of people together because it really is, it's a, it takes effort. It's not an easy thing. Churches often have volunteers who want to help with this, uh, you know, so there's different sources that you can go and the second thing is, Shannon, I think there was a question that came in first, and I think we skipped over it. I can't see it anymore, but it had something to do with a seven-year-old in a whether they should be mainstreamed or something like that. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right, and thank you for bringing that up. Would you recommend putting a seven-year-old with moderate autism that is functionally verbal in a general education class for half of the day in school? Right. So, um, and when I saw that question, the only thing I could say is it's very, very hard to say uh, because I don't know the child. But in general, uh, I think it, it is. It's there are benefits to mainstreaming in regular education, and then there are there's a downside too. So the benefit is that your child will get to. Uh, see other typically developing children and may possibly model uh, their behavior. So we'll learn language. Kids learn language from other kids more than they do from adults. So um, it's it helps in that sense because you're producing an environment for the child that will allow them to model others, right? Both in terms of language, communication, social, and also uh, behavior, okay? Now, on the negative side, uh, the issue is that if your child is not up to par, if there are skills that are required that your child is not yet able to, uh, to use or to have, then the child might feel a little isolated or might feel a little unsupported. And I don't really want any of my kids to fail so I always make sure that they have a lot of preparation, which basically means a lot of intensive ABA before they go to school. And when they go to school, I make sure that there's a shadow aid with the child in the school program who can help the child kind of interact appropriately, follow the rules, and, and basically just acts kind of initially as the child's aid and then as the classroom aid and starts to sort of assist the child in terms of integrating uh, amongst peers and within the classroom rules and so on. That is important. Having a few words is not really enough, I think, but at the same time, uh, as like I said, I don't know this child. So I also don't want the child to, you know, high functioning children. I hate when they are placed in special ed because the demands on them are reduced. And so, and you know, nobody ever does any more than they have to. Let's be honest, that's human nature. So when, if you don't have to perform, if you don't have to do things at a certain grade level, uh, you just won't. And those skills will kind of fall aside. And even if you were 
you know, and you're in an environment where other children might be exhibiting other challenging behaviors in special ed, and then our high functioning child might start imitating those. So it's really important to get this right. On the one hand, you want the child to be in a placement where they are modeling better behavior. And on the other hand, you want to make sure they are challenged adequately, but also rewarded, reinforced by the environment that they're in. And it's not too demanding so that it would cause the child to kind of have meltdowns or self-isolate. Yeah. I just want to say that, you know, I'm a former teacher and um, I always just say all kids should be mainstreamed. Like I was on that bandwagon. I was just like everybody, everybody, everybody. And then one of the world's leading experts on um, inclusion said to me, you should stop saying that because first of all, for some kids, it's too stressful. And they said, but more importantly than that, there's a lot, you know, they were like good inclusion when the school knows how to do it is one of the greatest things on the face of the planet. And we, there's no doubt in our mind that it works and it's effective. But he's like, do you know how many schools know how to do good inclusion, know how to mainstream a kid? He's, he's like, it's, that's, he said, I often, as much as I look as the, at the child, I look at, is the school prepared? Are, do they have the right yeah. mindset? Are, are they willing to rearrange what they thought they needed to do to include your child appropriately in the classroom? And that was very eye-opening to me. Yeah. Um, so it's as much looking at them and seeing, I, you know, we've had the great experiences with my son at school. And then we've also had bad experiences where it was just somebody who was like, you can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm not going to do that. And it didn't matter what you put in the IEP, man, you know, and, and like it creates a legal case, but I don't want a legal case. Yeah. I want a case where my child is happy, healthy, safe, and learning. That's it. Um, and you know, sometimes there are some people who just are like, no, this is how we treat this. This is how I run a classroom. And there, it doesn't matter what you say to them, they're not going to do it any other way. So yeah. I, I'm with Dr. Grant Pichet, be very careful because uh, we don't want kids in those classrooms. Yikes. Uh, okay, we're going to speed through some. Uh, we've got a lot of things about um, stereotypic uh, and automatic reinforcement. So how would Dr. Doreen treat repetitive movements? It's automatically reinforcing and hard for him to be aware of his movement movements. Could you please tell us how you would reduce hand flapping behavior? It's affecting his academics and he also has ADHD. Can you talk about continuing to follow a whole food diet and continuing organic and eating healthy? My son, this was the one that the son was listening, but we didn't hear back. So we assumed that we should not talk about it till now. So now <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, okay. But we also have other people talking about, auto, you know, um, kids who are spitting. How do you deal with spitting? And I am going to get to the question about the dogs. And thank you, Judy, for writing back in because yours was the email I couldn't find. Okay. So <clears throat> let's, let's just start in general with repetitive movements that are automatically reinforcing. And let's just first define what that is. So, you know, in autism, we have a series of behaviors that we call stereotypies or repetitive stereotypical behaviors that occur, and they could be different things. Uh, one of the main ones, for instance, is hand flapping like this, and that is, uh, you know, considered to be stereotypical, repetitive. It doesn't usually have a function. And so in the behavior analysis, when we look at those symptoms, we refer to them as being 
automatic in their function. Function is automatic reinforcement. That means it doesn't have an outside kind of a reason for ma maintaining that behavior. It's not like when the child does this, they receive a reward. The behavior itself is rewarding to the child. Now, that is entirely possible. Uh, some of uh, our viewers might have also seen in their children that uh, some children, for instance, might pick up an object and look at it from the corner of their eye, and that is very rewarding for them. Or they might uh, just do this with their fingers, and that is rewarding. So there are some stereotypical behaviors that are definitely automatic in, in their re reward. So first, let's make sure that is the case here. Uh, we don't want to assume that every self-stimulatory, every repetitive movement is automatically reinforcing. Some repetitive movements have to do with pain. The, the child is doing various uh, behaviors to reduce pain. For instance, I have seen many children where they will body rock um, and put pressure on their abdomen, and that is usually reduction of gastrointestinal type of pain. So that would be a different situation. Uh, it could also be that the child is doing something to reduce anxiety. That's another type of repetitive behavior. In fact, if you think about it with obsessive compulsive behaviors, which uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, is a type of anxiety disorder. And the individual has an obsession, like a thought. And as a result, they do compulsive behaviors like hand washing, which are repetitive in nature. So some of our kids do repetitive behaviors that reduce their anxiety. That is, a, again, in my mind, it's a different function than an automatically reinforced behavior. So let's make sure what the function is. Now, if there's a repetitive behavior that is automatically reinforcing, the really the only thing you can do is to replace it with something else that is automatically reinforcing. So for instance, perhaps the child is hand flapping and what you would do is you might give the child some sort of toy, let's say that they have in their pocket, uh, like those koosh toys or whatever they are, which feels sensory good for the child. And therefore now the child is willing to put their hands in their pocket and play with that toy instead of hand flapping. So you're replacing one self-stimulatory type of behavior with another one that might be more, uh, I don't know, so acceptable from a societal perspective. Um, those are the types of things you do when you were dealing with automatic reinforcer. That means you have to replace it with something else that provides its own automatic reward. Now, and then, so this was hand flapping. So there you go. That's one idea. Uh, you know, there are other things that you can do, but it, if it is an automatic feature, you need to figure out what is the re rewarding factor. If the child is hand flapping in front of their eyes, this, is no, this has nothing to do with hands. It has to do with visual self-stimulatory. So now we need to replace that behavior by giving the child occasional access to toys that might light up or have some other type of visual self-stimulation. Uh, someone else had written in about spitting, and I'll tie that in here because 
you know, we I've had children where for a long time we thought, why is the child spitting at people? And is this an avoidance type of behavior? In other words, is the child doing this in order to get out of some demand? And over time, we realized, oh, no, it actually has an automatic feature uh, function where the child spits because he or she likes to look at the way the spit looks when it is coming out of their mouth and how it's falling. So it was actually a visual automatic stimulation that the child was receiving. So if you know that your child is hand flapping and if you also know what the function is, it's automatic, yes, but is it giving the child a sensory input? Is it giving the child some sort of visual input? Try to find another more socially acceptable behavior that gives the same type of input, the same type of reinforcer, and that should help. Now, um, I think the same person had asked about healthy eating and whole food and all that. That's a really big topic, and it's not about just whole foods. We talk about whole food, you know, you go to the whole food store and you buy everything organic. The reason you're going there and trying to get organic food is because you want foods that are not uh, genetically modified. You want foods that are not covered in pesticides, um, foods that have not been given antibiotics, those types of things. And unfortunately, the definition of organic has changed multiple times. And so now when we purchase foods that are organic, they also can have five or six or seven pesticides that they've been exposed to. So um, the best type of food, I guess, is farmed food that has fewer pesticides. What you're trying to go for, whether you go to a store or to a farm, or to a farmer's market is really to ask how many pesticides has this food been exposed to? That's what you're trying to reduce. And the reason you're trying to reduce that is because you want to reduce a uh, toxicity for the child overall. So, um, you know, that is your goal. And now the type of diet, there are lots of different diets and that has to do more with what is your child's issue. Uh, is your child allergic to certain foods? Is your child uh, reacting to casein perhaps, which is the protein in, in dairy, uh, or to gluten, which is the protein in whole grains? Uh, is your child have inflammation when they are exposed to certain other types of foods? There's a lot of diets. So I don't want to recommend a diet without knowing what the child's specific issues are. I think the best way to do that is to actually see a uh, physician, particularly if you have access to a naturopathic physician, you will be able to do tests, both urine and blood tests, that will help you identify what's the best diet for your child. I want to say um, somebody has written in and said, my son stopped spitting thanks to you, Dr. Doreen, with two wow. exclamations. That's amazing. The other person oh, who wrote it about, <laughs> yes, the other person who wrote it in said, uh, that was asking specifically about spitting, said he's spitting in sinks and outside. Um, uh, is is it a oral motor texture thing? I mean, and, and again, it could also be a visual thing. Like, I just don't know because you sort of have to observe the child in multiple scenarios 
and see what is he getting out of this. When he spits outside, does he look at the spit as he's spitting? Does he look at where it lands? Those types of things. Does Is there a sound associated with it? Um, all right. I'm so glad that Judy wrote back in and she's written in more. So, uh, last week, Judy had written in to us, uh, about, uh, during a different show, Dr. Grampiche and was looking for resources in Pennsylvania for whatever reason, we have a lot of people right now who are asking for resources in Pennsylvania. And currently there are no card offices in Pennsylvania. Um, I had referred her to the, the Eagles Foundation and said, reach out to them. I also referred her to Autism Speaks. She's had no luck. Um, and she's in a pretty dire situation that um, the child last week who is nonverbal, who has a fear of dogs, ran out in front of a vehicle to get away from a dog. And she says, my worst nightmare flashed before me. What is the best way to be de desensitized? She says she wants to know on my own because there's not many resources in their area. So do you have any, uh, but yeah. she wants to know how can she do it on her own? But she also wants to know, are there any special people that could help her family other than her granddaughter that also has autism? Um, she went on to say uh, that she has started with pictures in his room uh, from people. Uh, and then does she move to sound? Uh a lot of questions okay. about, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm understanding the whole thing, but let's talk about running away okay. from a dog and. Yeah. Well, let's just it. talk about how to deal with running away from the dogs and let this might also help some of our other viewers. Cause it's a very useful procedure. It's called systematic desensitization, systematic desensitization. And you can look that up. I'm sure online people have also given examples but it is a pretty straightforward and easy procedure to get rid of any kind of phobia. Any kind of fear can be uh, reduced and, and completely eliminated through systematic desensitization. It has two steps. The, there are completely separate steps, and then you bring them together. One step is uh, you identify the object. So let's say the object of fear here is dogs, right? And we'd want to figure out exactly what kind of dog. Is it multiple dogs or is it like big dogs? Is it scary looking dogs? Like, what is it? That is the, the most frightening stimulus. So you take a, a the, list that, put that on a list and say exposure to a large dog. Standing in front of a large dog is the most feared uh, experience. That's not, that is the, the top of the line. One level below that would be maybe looking at a picture of a really, or a video. Let's put it, let's start there. Maybe seeing a really big, scary dog growling on TV. That might be like one level down. Another level down from there would be seeing a picture of the scary dog. Another level down would be seeing a different kind of dog. Another level down might be hearing the sound of a dog. Another level down might be hearing two people talk about a dog. I don't know. Every child is different. But the point is you start with the absolute most scary thing. And then you try to list at least 10 steps to a very neutral stimulus. So something that really is not scary. And I said at least 10. So you can have 20 if you want. 
But the, the top of the list is the most scary and the bottom of the list is something that's not scary. And it is just a, a different gradient of the same thing, right? So you start with, let's say, a picture of a cute little uh, comic dog that is not at all scary. And that will be where you will start. Now, phase two, the second thing you have to do in systematic desensitization is you have to teach the child relaxation techniques. They could be different. So they could be breathing exercises where you do one, two, like just something very simple like that. Or it could be visualization where you have the child actually sit and close their eyes and think of a wonderful experience like being on the beach and you teach the child to feel the warmth of the sun and the sand and whatever it is, that's a visualization of something very pleasant. Uh, if your child is not able to do those things, it could be just, uh, you know, helping the child think of some really fun experience, or you can also help them. For instance, you can have the child put on headphones and listen to their favorite music. Uh, you can have the child hold on to, let's say, a very co cozy, soft blanket or a an stuffed animal or something that gives the child comfort and makes the child relax. You try to teach the child to do that, to, to access those types of things, relaxation, visualization, calming music, soft uh, stuffed animals, something that is the opposite, gives the child the opposite feeling of anxiety. Now you pair each of those things that was in your hierarchy with that relaxation thing. So you will start with, let's say, the picture of a you know, comic strip type uh, dog. It's not at all scary. You put that in front of the child and you have them listen to music or hold on to their little stuffed animal. And the child is fine, great. Now we're on to level two. So now we put the child in front of a scary and slightly scary picture of a dog. And you, may, you do that over the course of a week and every day the child has access to all of their calming things, their visualization, their toys, their music, their foods, whatever is calming. And they're good with this stimulus now. So that stimulus is done. And now we go to level three. And now maybe it's watching a scary dog on TV, or maybe that's too far. Maybe we'll take a step back and we'll do a watching a dog on TV, but without the sound. You just do it very, very gradually to the point where, okay, you're now, let's say at the point where the child has all their good stuff on them and they're looking at a, the an actual dog outside of the window, maybe like you're in a car and they're safe and they can handle that. And you do that for a whole month and they're good with it. And now you're finally at the point where you make sure you have a trained, well-trained dog, because we don't want the dog to now do anything, jump at your child or attack the child and the child gets scared all over again. Um, you basically now just give them one minute, uh, one, 30 seconds, 10 seconds of exposure. And then, and the child realizes, okay, that was good. I'm gonna get a reward for this too. I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna get a reward. And then you do it very, very gradually. Um, so it's, it, you don't 
this is not something where you can flood the child. That's called flooding, where you just expose, because kids can fall apart in those situations. You do it super, super gradually. Um, in fact, you know, you might even want to have friends who have small, fluffy, friendly dogs bring their dog to the house when your child is at that level. Let your child acclimate to the fun dog inside the house, and then gradually the child will be more willing to go outside and actually encounter dogs in their natural environment. She says you are great and she's going to get started and she will keep us posted. But th the question early on when you were talking is, when do you know how to move? When do you know it's time to move on to the next step, Dr. Doreen? When your child is, uh, is, uh, doesn't mind the step that you're at. Like they, right. your child cannot have anxiety around wherever you are. And if they still do, you need to up the reinforcers at that level. So you need to make sure the child has additional rewards and additional ways of calming themselves down. So hear that, Judy, because she's saying that, uh, she's saying he can't relax. But yeah. if you start with a very tiny, tiny picture of a friendly dog and it's on the wall next to him and he can't relax for that, then you got to go really slow. Yeah. Right? And also, I mean, sometimes the issue is not even the stimulus. It's just that the child doesn't know techniques to relax. So make sure you work on that portion. It's not so much the hierarchy. You might have the hierarchy, but you need to find ways to teach the child to relax. Sometimes with our kids, they relax if they exercise. Sometimes with our kids, they relax if they eat. I mean, there are other things that you should be trying to see when the child, how the child can actually calm himself down. But let's be honest. Sometimes it's because we're not modeling the behavior. When we're walking around stressed all the time and we're not remembering to breathe, it's really hard to be in a place where we're trying to teach our children when we're not doing it ourselves. So yeah. let's all remember to be breathing and doing what we need to do to model the behavior. Uh, okay, I do. I have to say this because they were the, the people who said that you're the ones that got their uh, child to stop spitting. Uh, they they asked you about it. Uh, his the, it was the child who was spitting on the glass doors. Dr. Grampichet, you talked to them about it. They then showed all of their family members the live show, the feed from it, so that everybody would understand why they were going to ignore it. And they said, thank you so much. And lots of hearts and, and hands Thank together. God, so I'm so glad. Right? Isn't that great? Okay, but Aliyah wants to know, when do kids with ASD give first words? Because my brother, who just turned two, has ASD and has 10 words. I love when siblings write in. Yeah, and I love when two-year-olds are starting to have words. I love that. So uh, they it differs. So some kids start to say words at two, and that's a very, very good sign. The earlier you say words, the better. This, it's a very positive sign. Um, but then there are people who never say words, too. And, uh, you know, they become older, and we then try to teach them words, and sometimes we're successful, and sometimes we're not. Um, and in those cases, we will then teach the individual different ways of communicating, let's say through typing or through using an AUG device or an, an iPad. But ultimately, we always try to teach language first or speech first. And if that doesn't work, we go to other types of non-vocal communication. 
But the fact that your sibling is starting to say words that too is great. I wouldn't take that though to, I would still uh, suggest to your parents that they might want to consider giving your sibling some additional ABA to, to get things going faster. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, uh, Olayinka, I hope I didn't say it wrong. Uh, please, I'd like to know more about eliminating or reducing scripting. My six-year-old son who is on the autism spectrum scripts often and it gets in the way of therapy and general learning. Sending yeah. you a hug. Sending you a hug and it's difficult. Uh, and I, I'm making some assumptions here. Usually our kids script the stuff that they hear on, inside their TV shows. So for instance, we might like listen to a program and really enjoy something and then we'll repeat it out of context. Uh, so there's a couple of things. One is if you can identify where the scripts are coming from, uh, get rid of those particular shows or switch them out fast so that your child doesn't have repeated exposure to the same source, right? Because that's where the scripts are coming from. And that, those are, by the way, usually the most reinforcing. So don't be surprised if your child tantrums or objects when you switch those things out, because our kids will prefer to have those types of shows where they are able to script from or they're more interested in. That's one. The second thing is when the child actually scripts, uh, try to see if you can give an introduction to what he is scripting. In other words, uh, when you think of typical uh, language and communication between typically developing kids, they, sometimes they do script, but they just introduce what the script is. So in other words, a child might say something like, uh, "I last night I watched this TV show and on the show... And then there's a whole script coming out, right? But because they give that introduction, it is socially normal. It is socially acceptable. With our kids, they don't give any kind of introduction. They just say the part they heard. And so a lot of times we try to teach our kids how to introduce where it came from. Like it could be something as simple as I, 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 was, I was just remembering blah, blah, blah. And it made me laugh, right? By saying, I was just remembering, and it made me laugh on the two sides of the script, it makes it very socially acceptable. So depending on the level of functioning of the child, if the child's high functioning enough, what you do is you give the introduction and you give the conclusion so that the script flows inside their conversation. If the child is not that high functioning, it is best to try to replace the scripting with more appropriate language, depending on the scenario. It's really hard for me to give advice because I don't know exactly uh, where the child's scripting fits in in their social environment, what their functioning level is, and so on. One, well, uh, that's still great advice. Hopefully, uh, they'll write back more on another day if they need more. I just want to say, because we're out of time, Aliyah has written back in about her sibling that's two and said, thank you so much. He has been giving joint attention and pointing. Great. And great. yes, he is starting next week with ABA and speech. Aliyah, what a great sibling you are. And I personally hope that you learn all the things that they do at ABA because you will be his best little therapist. 
It's true. Uh, that's just the case. So Dr. Grampichet, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate your time and Always answering our questions. We'll have Dr. Grampichet back next week. Um, and then I, this is the first time we're announcing this. I want everybody to know that um, Tuesday is World Autism Awareness Day. Now I know April is coming and usually we talk about April autism. Many people this month have suggested that we not, you know, it's like everybody's suggesting different things, but Autism Society of America asked all news outlets to consider changing it to Autism Acceptance Month. And I know that there is another group that's about autism action, that we want some, you know, it's nice to be aware, it's nice to accept, but if our politicians don't take some action, so whichever A word you're participating in, awareness, uh, acceptance, action, we welcome you. We've got, we've got amazing shows that Dr. Grampichet and I have been cooking up. She's going to be with us most of April. We're going to be recognizing people in the autism community and specifically at CARD that are just stars and superstars because we want you to feel the love of how many people care about you or your family or your kiddos and are making a difference on the front line. So she's going to be with us on, uh, it's still called World Autism Awareness Day on the 2nd of April. Uh, Dr. Grampichet is going to be with us and she's going to be with us every day that very next week, which will encompass her birthday. Mm -hmm. uh, so you will want to be tuned in for that because we always like to uh, make a big deal about her birthday. Just to know, let you guys know that all of that is coming up. Tomorrow, we are back here with Leah Hirschfeld, who's going to be giving us some really important updates about research that you guys are going to want to know about. And then we got a great Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy for you on Friday. We're back tomorrow. Until then, and thank you again, Dr. Grampy Shea. Oh, it's But until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too.